welcome to the August podcast from Mind and Soul. This month we interview Ariana Walker, Chief Executive of Mercy Ministries UK, which is a new residential counselling service for young girls with life-controlling issues. We also examine the question of whether it's appropriate for Christians to take antidepressants. We're here in the beautiful hills outside Bradford at Mercy Ministries, uh, an incredible house. And um, here there are 12 girls who are being ministered to on a six-month program. And uh, we're chatting to Ariana Walker today, who, who runs this centre. Ariana, tell us a little bit about Mercy Ministries and about how, how they started. Okay, well, Mercy Ministries is part of an international organisation uh, founded by a woman called Nancy Alcorn about 23 years ago in America. Um, and she'd been working in the secular environment for a long time, for about 10 years, uh, in women's prisons, in child protection. And it was after many years of, of seeing broken lives not actually being healed and the cycle of destruction just continuing that she felt something needed, needed to be done. And as a Christian, she just talked to God and God just gave her this incredible vision and a revelation that the world isn't called to heal the brokenhearted, the churches, and that's our responsibility as Christians. And so she started a home for young women uh, in Louisiana, and it was the first Mercy Ministries home, and this home would run a program, a residential program, for girls with what we call life-controlling issues, that's self-harming, eating disorders, emotional um, abuse, or anything that they've been through in the past that, that is controlling their life right now. And so over the years, that's expanded to three homes now in the US with two more on the way, one in Canada on the way, two homes operating in Australia with many more on the way there. There's one now opening in New Zealand. And last September, we opened the first home here in the UK. And so it's very exciting to, to see it just grow uh, in such a short time, really. Brilliant. This is your third group of interns yeah. that are starting now. And yeah. they're on the programme for how long? They're on the programme for six months altogether, and that's uh, quite a set time. Very few go over the six months, uh, so they, they stay here for a period of six months altogether. Yeah. And, and I understand that, that Mercy Ministries is founded on three core principles. Do you just want yes. to outline what they are? Well, there was three things that God told Nancy specifically that she should use as the building blocks for the organisation. And the first one was to take all girls in free of charge. Uh, and especially in America, that's really important because of the whole private healthcare over there, many people making money off of girls' problems and really just oozing money out of families because of, because of a girl who's got an issue and not really helping anyone. So she feels really strongly about not charging girls. Uh, you know, you can't put a price on, on God's love and we need to demonstrate that in, in how we run this programme. So we don't charge a girl at all. We don't take any government funding that's got strings attached. We preach the gospel here. It's Bible-based teaching, it's Christian counselling, and therefore government funding would tie us up and make us compromise what we actually stand for and believe in. Uh, so we don't take any government funding that's got strings attached, and we tithe all of our income to other ministries and churches in the area. Well, so those, those principles are they're quite uh, challenging for your organisation, yeah. I would have thought. <laughs> um, so you don't receive any kind of direct government funding and yeah. the girls who's residential here, they don't, they don't uh, pay anything towards their care. Um, so you're dependent, what sort of sources of finance are you dependent on? Oh, we have a lot of different um, 
platforms, it actually costs £12,000 for one girl's six month stay, uh, which sounds a lot of money, but when you compare that to, uh, for instance, a low security prison, which costs around £50,000 per year per inmate, um, it's not bad, really. Yeah, sure. um, and again, this girl's life is restored permanently in many cases, in about 80% of cases. Uh, so we, we rely heavily on um, Christians in this country believing in what we do. So individual givers, uh, we have about £8,000 a month now, eight to 9000 that comes in every month from individual people giving from as little as £5 right up to £500 and in one case £1,000 a month. Uh, that really supports our work and that's great because we can really plan ahead yeah. On, on bringing on more staff or extending the property. We, we can do that on the basis of what we know is coming in. Yeah. Um, we then have partner churches who will do one-off giving, perhaps uh, do an offering for us. We have a group that we call 365. That's uh, We're aiming to have 365 churches in this country adopt a day a year. Yeah. And for £1,000, that is one day. It costs around £1,000 to run the programme yeah. and, and everything in the organisation for one day. So that works out about £85 a month yeah. for a church or a one-off giving of £1,000. Yeah. So we have about 10 to 12 churches doing that regularly now. Okay. So we've got a long way to go. A long way to go. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things I really uh, have enjoyed about visiting this centre is that sense that that you're really lavishing God's goodness on yeah. these individuals and that each one of them is so valuable. Yeah. I, I guess as part of um, quite large Christian ministries in the UK, I'm always concerned about the yeah, you know, the sort of the way in which we have an attitude of sort of great numbers for great ministry. But yeah. this is really a sort of seems to me anyway, a great expression of how God loves yeah. individuals and wants to lavish his goodness on them. Yeah. And uh, and that's quite a strong part of the healing yeah. process. There's something that we've um in our team that we really talk about a lot and that's three things. It's passion for God, passion for people and passion for excellence. And those are things that we really our culture is set like in that way. And that, that is, is shown in lots of different areas and, and as well in the environment that we create for the girls. God is an excellent God. He is a lavish God and he lavishes his love on us. And we want to communicate to the girls that they are valued, that they are loved, that they are precious. And that you can't do that any more clearly than from the moment she walks into the door, she sees the most beautiful furniture, the most beautiful paintings. Just... And they've all been donated. It's not that we're spending an awful lot of money on these things. They, these are just coming from people who agree with that and who say, tell you what, I'm going to furnish this house for you. I own a company. I own a furniture company. I'm going to give you everything. And that's what's happened. That's our testimony is that when you set yourself a standard, God will meet that and he will, he will bless that and he will go, absolutely, I agree with you. I'm going to provide for that. That's brilliant. Um, tell us a little bit about the working day-to-day -day, um, experience of the girls in the house. Well, every day is very scheduled. You know, lots of these girls come from chaotic backgrounds, and even just having a set time to get up is new to them. And and we have to help them understand that routine is important. We need boundaries in every area of our life, including when you get up and when you go to bed and when you eat. So they get up about seven thirty. And they have about an hour and a half to get up, get dressed, clean, tidy their bedroom, uh, have a shower, um, come down and have breakfast. So that for about nine o'clock, everybody's done with all the jobs of the morning. And then they go into Bible reading, which is just time by themselves, quietly reading uh, a daily uh, devotional. 
sometimes they'll have a discussion and then they go into praise and worship for half an hour to 40 minutes and then they have a break have a snack uh, especially some of the girls who've got eating disorders um, they are on a meal plan so they have certain times where they will eat certain things uh, one of the girls at the moment is on a protein bar so she's to go and she'll sit in the office and just eat her protein bar or shake or something um, and then that's about 15 minutes and they have class for an hour that takes us up to lunchtime when it's lunch after that it's clean up after lunch and the afternoons are quite um, heavily scheduled for each individual girl because everyone's on their own program so some girls will go and have counseling some girls will do the horse program where we do uh, some counseling with horses uh, it's that's a whole different story okay. um, and other girls will do some fitness uh, or, or they'll work on their counseling assignments during the afternoon and then it's tea time and evening class and bed Wow, so that great. happens every day. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, everyone we've seen here looks extremely happy and healthy, mm -hmm. and um, it was lovely to see some of the girls just, um, even just just walking around here today, looking so much part of, of this environment. It's very strongly a sense of community here. How can people um, support, finally, and kind of get involved in Mercy? What's the best way um, of, of supporting Mercy as it is? Well, really, our biggest need right now is finances. We are really struggling. Uh, we've just gone up a level with bringing on new staff and increasing our intake to 12 girls so we're just finding that we need to increase our income too uh, you know i always think about the um the story of the good samaritan where he, he not only saw the need he he actually picked up the guy he dusted down his wounds he, he tended to him and then he also paid for his keep but not everybody has got the expertise or the time or the anointing to do the picking up and the, and the tending to the wounds but all of us together as Christians can actually help pay towards their needs. And, and really that's what I would appeal to people is, you know, we are, we are called and we know that we're good at what we do here. But we need everybody to get on board and just to help just £5 a month, £10 a month towards the keep of these girls. And I would really appeal to people to get in touch with us or go online and you can give online. So that's really, that's really what helpful. I would, would concentrate our asking for <laughs> yeah well we we're going to have some links to you on the minusol website so if you're listening to this um short podcast then do have a look at mercy ministries and also we just want to encourage you um if you're listening to this podcast to pray for Arianne, for Arianne and yeah, also absolutely. for the other staff here and uh, they do an amazing job so let's pray for them and let's also pray for the young girls here who are being ministered to and seeing transformation through the power of the holy spirit thanks a lot for listening talking about antidepressants uh, in particular medication in general and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why they're why I think they are useful in certain circumstances I'm also going to touch a little bit from from Will's perspective on um, you know what the church thinks about them Christians particularly in churches often sort of saying really awful things about this or, or very black and white statements about it I mean well do you want to tell us maybe a few things that you've heard said about antidepressants over the years well I've heard quite a lot of negative <laughs> statements about antidepressants I heard um, a lot of kind of very dramatic and um, kind of baseless suggestions that antidepressants can uh, really send you over the edge 
they can um, actually have very negative consequences for you as a person, maybe for your family. Um, spiritually, they're sometimes being referred to as a sort of sign of weakness or they're not real healing. And, uh, and, and there's a sort of, um, I'd say there was a very un, uh, sort of unfortunate and unhelpful culture of stigmatizing uh, people who are suffering from mental illness who need uh, to take antidepressants um, and, and yet are kind of uh, made to feel that an option of taking them is actually sort of a demonstration of real weakness and faithlessness. Mm. And so, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's, a kind of, that's a common position in the church today, and I think it's a very worrying one, Rob. And would, would you say that most people who are taking antidepressants and going to church probably don't tell anyone? Absolutely. I'd say it's definitely true um, that people who come to church who were on antidepressants uh, would be very secretive about the fact that they are. Um, nearly always I, I find out uh, when praying for people, and normally if they say I'm suffering from depression, I, I often ask them, are you taking any medication? And uh, they sometimes initially look at me a little bit startled and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I want to tell uh, my vicar that I'm taking antidepressants. But I just say it's okay. Mm. And, and actually that's a point of release. I'm not deliberately trying to uh, kind of um, you know ask that information for its own sake I just want them for their sake to say yes I am I can accept them as part of my healing and actually they're very useful and helpful mm. I have also had the question raised several times by people who've come to me and said in a sort of a guilty way um, you know will I'm on the antidepressants do you think I should stop and just trust the Lord <laughs> which I think is a you know is incredible um, you know, an and, and unfortunate, a thoroughly understandable, but sort of an unfortunate perception of the church's view mm. about medication. Mm. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, people often say, oh, if you had more faith, you wouldn't be depressed. But the, the, there's, there's kind of a number of sort of other things that, you know, fertility treatment, for example, you know, should Christians have fertility treatment or should they have faith? Um, and then what about people who've got, got cancer? You know, should they... Should they take chemotherapy or should they have faith that, that, that God is going to heal them? And then what about, what about pensions? You know, <laughs> um, should we have pensions or should we have faith that, that, that God is going to miraculously provide. provide for us in Absolutely. our old age? So, so the faith thing's interesting because it, I mean, do you think there is, because there is an element of faith, isn't there, in, in, in getting over depression? And can antidepressants detract from your faith or, or can you be full of faith and still take antidepressants? You can be full of faith and still take antidepressants. I think um, that, unfortunately, certain aspects of the church over-spiritualize um, people's physiological condition. And, and as a result, especially their, 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 the mental condition, you know, the regard, the physical, the change of the brain that can often occur in depression and the different nature of depression, which themselves is a massive um, spectrum of different levels and natures uh, that cause this illness. Uh, an illness is still an illness. And as a, as a Christian leader, I really hope that other Christian leaders would view depression as an illness that needs to be treated in appropriate means. The uh, church leader would have very little to say about how to apply chemotherapy or how to apply uh, drugs for Alzheimer's. Uh, and, and I think they have very little to say about uh, how doctors should prescribe their medication. Tell me about um, how you would apply it, Rob, as, as a as a, a, a psychiatrist. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Will. I think, I think that's good, actually, because, you know, one of the things you said there was depression is an illness and that, that vicars and other church leaders shouldn't be meddling in, in, in illnesses and, and, and things like that. And I, think, I think that's quite interesting. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's as clear-cut as that, but 
I suppose I'm, as a, as a psychiatrist and as a Christian, I, I see that there's a number of things going on in depression. I don't think depression is as clearly an illness as perhaps cancer. And there's a number of different reasons for that. Um, cancer, you, you can see. Depression, you can't see. Um, you, can, you can see parts of depression. And um, I think, but also I think as, as, as a Christian, because depression really sort of taps into some of our core identities about um, our faith and our identity and things that we're going to be talking a lot about with mind and soul, I do think there's a spiritual element to depression and and a pastoral and a counseling and a, a talking therapies and all these kind of things are more there in depression than perhaps they are in, in in cancer you know there's very little understanding that you can talk cancer out of existence whereas there is an understanding that you can talk depression out of existence by using things like cognitive behavioral therapy so so it's not necessarily an illness exactly like cancer but i think we can make a bit of a distinction between unhappiness, loneliness, low self-esteem and things like that and what psychiatrists call clinical depression. So, so clinical depression is the depression that is perhaps the more severe end of the spectrum and also really begins to affect the body. So for example you're losing weight um, you're only sleeping two hours a night. Your your sex drive is completely non-existent, and you find it very difficult to to engage and and, and become aroused. Um, your appetite is is completely gone, and food literally tastes like plastic. Your your concentration is so poor that you can't even follow a simple soap opera or or, or magazine story. So I suppose I would say that antidepressants are appropriate in that clinical depression. Um, but there's other types. Depression is such a common word. It's used by all kinds of people to mean different things. And I think there's other types of depression I've talked about. Perhaps antidepressants have less of a role and perhaps there are more sort of spiritual, pastoral, counselling things that we ought to be looking at. Sure, Rob. I, I completely agree with you there. I mean, my, my, um, my, my statement about the f sort of the physiological aspects to depression that you, you talked about so well uh, when talking about clinical depression and the things that I think you know, need to be treated, if you like, um, mm. by doctors in the appropriate mm. way. I also um, see how many people, uh, just by becoming part of the church community and, and being able to talk through their issues, are released from uh, lesser depressions. Yeah. And so there is a matrix of different yeah. aspects. And I, I think I'm very concerned about a, a sort of a medical culture, which is, you know, pills first, talk mm. later. Mm. Um, and I think that's one area where we, we, we really want to say, look, um, I believe very strongly that at the appropriate time with medical uh, guidance, antidepressants are the appropriate route, yeah. and we need to leave doctors to make those sort of calls. Yeah. At the same time, what we want to be doing is incorporating uh, sort of talking therapies, um, therapeutic community, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, and and just a kind of opportunity for people to talk and be listened to appropriately, which in themselves can produce great release. And I think the current thinking, if I'm right, is that cognitive behavioural therapy with antidepressants is one of the is sort of one that's seen as being one of the, the, the primary routes to healing from, from depression at this time. Is that, is that correct? I think so. And I think, I think it's definitely a both and rather than either or. So um, there's two things, I guess, that really distress me. You know, one is when a person walks into their GP surgery with something that probably is not clinical depression. 
you know, maybe their marriage is going through a rough time or they're being bullied at work or something like that and they're, they're given a prescription for antidepressants. And I understand partly why that is because GPs are very hard-pressed. They've only got seven minutes with each person. But I don't think that kind of prescribing is appropriate. I think the other kind of thing that I, I'm not keen on is is when people say this is entirely spiritual and you just need prayer here because because it's quite obvious that there are some changes in the person's body that are going on and I think it needs to be a both and and it, and it may be that antidepressants will help relieve some of the symptoms in order to help the person think about the other issues that are going on such as maybe unhelpful drinking patterns that they've got into or they just need their head to be clear enough for a little while so that they can begin to think about some of the issues about their faith and their Christianity. Maybe go and read some of the articles on the Mind and Soul website. They might not actually physically be able to read if their brain biochemistry was as disrupted as it can be in clinical depression. Sure. I, I think that's so helpful, Rob. I had an experience of clinical depression myself uh, some years ago for about uh, two weeks. It responded to uh, the London bombings and there was a particular sort of uh, experience of, of traumatic stress followed by experience of clinical depression. And I think I lost about a stone and a quarter and I felt absolutely terrible. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what on earth is going on here? Um, all, I love eating and all the food that I ate tasted absolutely disgusting. I love sleeping and I couldn't sleep properly. And, and I just was in such a tangle. And I remember thinking, how on earth am I going to move out of this? Now, when I was offered um, antidepressants by my doctor at that time, I remember thinking, uh, what about the shame involved in this? How on earth am I going to cope with this? Mm. You know, I don't want to tell you on this. And my design was, uh, okay, I'll take, the, I'll take the tablets, um, you know, and then as soon as I can get off, off the tablets, I'm going to get off the tablets. Mm. And what I actually ended up looking back on was seeing the tablets, if you like, as an opportunity to climb a rock wall. At, at that time, I was ropeless and at yep. the bottom of a deep crevasse. And I could see the uh, sides, but I couldn't see a way up. And I think, if you like, the uh, antidepressants can be like a rope thrown down to you. You still have to climb the cliff, uh, but with the help of this rope, you can actually begin to come up. Now, I found that relatively straightforwardly for me, although it's not everyone's situation, relatively straightforward for me, I was, I was in a place where I felt clear enough and strong enough to actually then say goodbye uh, to antidepressants and actually continue then with some uh, cognitive behavioural therapy to help me move completely out of that experience of depression. But, um, but, but, but for me, I think um, that antidepressants are like a rope uh, which, is, which is cast out mm. an opportunity to join together mm. to help you up. And it's also sometimes not clear whether it's clinical depression or whether it's unhappiness or whether it's deeply ingrained personality traits that have gone on for, for many years. Uh, there's lots of people who, who use self-harm as a coping mechanism today. And um, are they depressed or aren't they depressed? And sometimes it's very difficult to tell. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've met people who, who have been suicidal but actually, I've also been fairly clear that the answer wasn't antidepressants and the answer that they weren't suffering from clinical depression. You, you could say that some of the people had deeply ingrained personality traits or profound crises with their faith or their identity because of things that had happened or that actually they were going through a completely normal experience. And if I'd been through what they would have been through, I would also have the symptoms and the behavior and the thoughts that they had. And I wouldn't want to get in there and medicalize that and say that antidepressants are needed in all situations. Because something that can look very severe is not necessarily clinical depression. It could be just an acting out of something or, or some kind of internal crisis that's going on. So, so when I'm 
when I'm working with someone and if I'm thinking about prescribing antidepressants, I, I, I tend to do two things. The first thing I do is I look for a recent change and I'm looking for these symptoms in the body by that. So what I'm looking perhaps is that the person who a few months ago seemed to be doing okay. Now, maybe they weren't the happiest person in the world, but they were functioning, they were eating, they were able to concentrate, and now all of those things have gone. So the bodily symptoms have, have come. They're, they're not eating, they've lost weight, they're, they're not concentrating. And what you kind of get is you, you, you kind of get a feeling that this thing has taken over and it's begun to impact their whole self you know everything is depressed not just their mood but their sleep is depressed their sex drive is depressed their appetite is depressed all of these things are there and it's a change from a few months ago whereas other people who perhaps were have always been unhappy have always had low self-esteem and there hasn't necessarily been a huge change in that I'd be thinking that's less likely to be clinical depression the other thing I do is I set fairly clear targets for the antidepressant Okay, so for example, in the story you just told, what you unconsciously did, I think, was you said, I'm going to take these antidepressants for a month or two, and what I'm looking for is I'm looking for them to bring my appetite back and help my sleep. Absolutely. And, and they did that. Yeah. And therefore, what we can suggest is that there was a disturbance in the chemistry in your brain, and they corrected that, and they helped you with that. Um, and I think what I tend to do with people is I tend to set targets, and I'll say, right, this is what you're looking for antidepressants to achieve. Okay, fine. They seem appropriate to me. Here's a prescription. Come back and see me in two months, and we'll see what's happened. And I'm fairly ruthless about this. So if come, someone comes back and sees me in two months, and the antidepressants haven't touched it, what I will usually do is stop the antidepressants at that time. Very occasionally, I will try a second one. Okay. okay. But usually, if, if they haven't worked for what we thought they were going to work for, we will stop and we will think again for other reasons why this person's unhappy. Not to do with the biochemistry in their brain, but more to do with what's going on around. On the other hand, if they have been helpful, what I will usually do is recommend they stay on them for a further six months to a year. Um, and listening to you, it does possibly sound as though you stop yours slightly soon. But that's <laughs> yeah. not necessarily Absolutely. a problem because it's worked out sure. okay in your case. But the advice I have to give is that if it has worked, and they have helped you with your symptoms, and you're feeling 100% better, that you ought to stay on them for six months to a year to really make sure that you've grounded and embedded those effects, which, which you said you went on to do by having some one-to-one -one sure. stuff. Yeah, it was really interesting. My situation was that uh, you know, within really three months, uh, you know, I'd, within two months, I'd stopped taking them regularly, and, I'd, and I began to take them alter on alternate days and then on triple days. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, what, what was interesting for me was actually I was very much responding to the guilt and shame I felt uh, for taking antidepressants right, uh, right. A, a, as a church leader. And, uh, and so, my, so you my, wanted to get off so, them. So I wanted to get off them as soon as possible. And the fact that they'd actually affected my, my you know, that my appetite had returned, my sex drive had returned, uh, my sleeping patterns had been improved, and I was feeling much better. And that this sort of dark cloud that I mm. felt that I was under, this very oppressive feeling, mm. uh, had lifted. I felt able to move forward. Now, it, interestingly, my doctor said what you said, which was, "Wow, you know, this is, you know, you're coming off this yeah. too soon." And I said, "Well, you know, I, I believe that, you know, I, I'm now." strong enough and I can do this. Um, looking back, 
um, if, I, if I think, goodness, you know, I should take my own medicine in terms of <laughs> literally and metaphorically, in that I'm now saying, yes, antidepressants I think are good. Uh, I think even for a year afterwards I would probably recommend it. Mm. You know, I wouldn't have felt so sure, but now I think, you know, actually, uh, that actually really gave me a leg up and helped me to get yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and I'd encourage other people to take their doctor's advice. And if we come back to the metaphor you were using earlier about climbing up a cliff with a rope, that, that, that's a metaphor I actually often use with people. I say, you're at the bottom of the cliff or you're in the pit or whatever it is. These things have helped you climb up to the top of the cliff. But what you now have to do is you have to get a couple of fields away from the top of the cliff. There's, so there's a couple of walls in between you and the cliff. And once you've done that and you've put two or three key things in place, and that's norm that normally takes a few months to do. So you either make some major internal changes or you make some significant external changes. You're getting out of bad habits. You're, you're looking at the number of hours you're working at work, things like that. Once you've made a few of those key changes in your life, then and that's usually six months to a year down the line. You're quite a long way away from the top of the cliff. Then wean yourself slowly off the antidepressants and the chances are you won't be back over and down the cliff or if you are at least there's a wall or two in between you and the top of the cliff so you can catch yourself and have a think about things again. I think that's really, really helpful advice, Rob, especially uh, as a church leader. I, I think I come across too many people who believe that they're going to take antidepressants. If they say yes to a prescription, they're going to spend the rest of their life basically mm. taking antidepressants day in, day out, day in, day out. And I think um, it's that kind of perception which is most unhelpful because actually the belief is, well, you can't get healing from depression when actually we know that uh, many people can get healing from depression mm. and, and that healing is something that's, uh, that, 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 that is available and that mm. real healing can also take place uh, when you're taking antidepressants. Yeah, and I think what I would say to someone who's been taking antidepressants, you, the people who've been taking antidepressants for three, four, five years, 10, 20 years sometimes, and I, I suppose what I would say to people is if you feel they're really helping you, then stay on them. And, um, but keep open your mind to other ways of improving and increasing your mental health. If they're really not working, I think it might be something you might want to have a chat to your GP or your psychiatrist about. And my, my personal practice when I'm working with people and they've perhaps been on two or three antidepressants and they want me to try a fourth one and, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm really not convinced that this is going to be the answer. Um, what we may do is try a fourth one using those methods that I've said earlier, i.e., this is what we're looking to see. And if we don't see this, we're going to go back onto what you were before. And I think always keeping an open mind. And I have to say, I'm probably less likely than some of my colleagues to try lots of different antidepressants. I probably will try one, maybe two, occasionally three, to see if there is a biochemical imbalance there that can be reversed. But I'm always open to other things and I think I think one of the reasons I think that is and that there are two schools of thought of this in, in in psychiatry some people will say that depression is caused by a biochemical imbalance and that's what we should be treating I'm not convinced that's the case I think that the biochemical imbalance in depression is the consequence of what's happened that people are no longer doing very much that they're thinking all these negative thoughts so what we can do is we can use antidepressants to reverse it to protect people to a certain extent from it coming back again but we should always have out there an eye for the, for the causes, whatever the causes were, were it an imbalance of demands and resources, were it more profound questions about self-esteem and identity. So, so I think my advice to people who've been on antidepressants for a long period of time is don't make any rapid decisions about it, but do keep an open mind. 
do keep an open mind. And of course, we'd obviously recommend to any listener here uh, through Mind and Soul that they will see their GP to discuss these issues Definitely. with them in person. Definitely. Uh, that's really helpful, Rob. Thanks very much uh, for talking about antidepressants. We do hope that, uh, that the listeners at home find this very helpful. Thank you. Good. good. Coming along all right? Yeah, good. Coming up to an hour, believe it or not. Yeah, We've yeah, been maybe. chatting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much personal stuff it's helpful to share, but, uh, you know. And that's good. Yeah. And that's fine. I thought that was really good. It really sort of comes out quite useful. I had quite an interesting experience where I, where I had some panic attacks, felt very stressed about the bombs and all that sort of stuff. It was all kind of mm. coming out. Mm. And I went onto, uh, I, remember I went onto the website or something like that and found out that I was having panic attacks. Because immediately I thought, oh my goodness, I'm having panic attacks. And then I just literally, it was like dropping a stone into a pond. Because immediately I thought, I'm losing it. So you literally fall through the floor, feeling terribly depressed. But because I mm. felt like that it was all going, you know, that it was all spiraling out of control. Mm. Mm. And then it was quite an amazing experience because I had really, I felt absolutely awful. You know, and I, I never, never sort of imagined that you could feel that bad. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. really mm. Like I remember sort of looking up food and just, just struggling. Like I knew mm. I had to eat three meals a day. But mm. It was just such a struggle. So forcing yourself to it's do really it. It's really odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I suppose, you, you know, you just get an idea of the power of the mind. Sure, it's so incredible. you ever had that experience where, like, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're convinced you're falling out of bed. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like falling. It really, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, really feels like yeah, falling. Sure. But in actual fact, all it is is, you know, you're waking up and you're having a little, little, well, they're, 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 they're hallucinations, basically. Right. You know, when you wake up, you're having a hallucination that you're falling. Yeah. And hallucinations are quite normal during the time that you're just going to bed or yeah. that you're just waking up. But they're so real. Yeah. Or that feeling that you know you've left the tap running in the bathroom next door and you have a dream about going over niagara falls in a barrel all <laughs> yeah. because the, the water's trickling and the mind is such a powerful yeah, thing it's incredibly powerful mm. yeah and then you know it, that experience i think a couple of weeks really made me sort of i mean i i just i was just so thankful when mm. the really dark feelings sort of began mm. to lift and that mm. was i think that i'm sure that was a mm. result of, uh, mm. of i mean it was a result of realizing that i wasn't going to die but also a result of some antidepressants really helped me realize I wasn't going to die. Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure this experience is a really common experience for people who are suffering from physical illness. I mean, if you're diagnosed with, you know, a serious physical illness, then I'm sure quite a lot of people slip into um, into that sort of feeling of clinical depression soon after. Well, I think I think what you know, you, if, if if I get an illness, if if I get if I get a headache, right, I expect to be over it tomorrow. And if I'm not going to be over it tomorrow, I'm reaching for the paracetamol or I make sure I'm well hydrated or something like that. And, you know, I expect my headache not to be there tomorrow. Or if I sprain my ankle playing football or tripping over a curb or something like that, yeah, it's going to hurt for a few days. But in a week or two's time, I expect it to be as good as new. Sure. And I think particularly when people are younger, they expect their bodies to work in that kind of way. Yeah. And partly as people get older, or sometimes this can happen to younger people if, if something really comes into their life. They get problems that don't go away. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, people who maybe, I don't know, you know, I was, I was, I was listening to someone who, who had, a, they had a brain tumour and they had this headache due, due to a brain tumour and it, it didn't go away. Yeah. Now, as it turned out, they were going to have an operation and so on and, and things worked out okay for them, but they, they couldn't get this headache to go away. And because they had a very short-term focus to their problems they yeah. wanted it to go away and they were reaching for painkillers and all this kind of stuff and you know I, so I sat down and explained to them that they were treating this thing as though it was a headache that was going to go away mm -hmm. and the reality was it probably wasn't going to go away 
until they had the operation. And what they're able to do is they're able to sort of change their approach to it. Okay. And another example might be, yeah, if you sprain your ankle, you expect it to be a week, better a week later. But what happens as we get older and we begin to get bits of arthritis in, in our knees or our ankles or we get some arthritis in our hands maybe that mean we can't do our hobby of of gardening or or modeling or wherever we used our hands with before or a pianist you know my, my gran developed very bad arthritis in her hands towards the end of her life and if she had adopted that approach of i expect this to be better tomorrow it probably wasn't going to happen so what she had to do was she had to sort of say i'm going to do what i can with my hands despite the fact that i've got arthritis in my hands so she she did a little bit, she did more teaching and less playing herself. She was able to play a little bit and she could play enough to teach, but she went more into the teaching side of it. Or the person who is, um, who is a keen gardener maybe, they, they may have to sort of take up another hobby instead and invest their energy and their dreams in that. Whereas if they spent their whole time thinking about the garden they can now no longer have, that probably is going to result in depression. Sure. Whereas if they're thinking... I can't garden, but I can do bits and bobs, and I can maybe pay one of the young lads to come around and do some of the more heavy manual work, and they can still keep designing gardens and doing bits of pruning. They're more likely to, to cope with the loss of function in their hands than the person who wants things, wants to wind back the clock and really focus on on how things were going so it's before. It's like they're driving a car into a brick wall rather than trying to find a different yeah. route around it. You're onto a loser. You're onto yeah. a loser. You know, yes, as Christians, we believe it's possible that the arthritis in your hands could be healed. Yeah. And, and may that happen. And I believe people should, should pray for that. But until that healing comes, it's best not to focus on that. For more information on what you've heard today and for previous episodes of our podcast, please see the Mind and Soul website, www.mindandsoul.info. Thank you for listening.